Joined right now by uh, Michael Austin from our friends at Project 21. And uh, hey, Mike, good to talk to you again. Totally different topic here. Supreme Court saying that they are going to take up an interesting case regarding, I guess you could say, affirmative action, race-based admissions at Harvard. Kind of set the stage for us. What is it that's being challenged and why is it so important that the Supreme Court has taken up this particular case? Well, uh, thanks so much for having me, Mike. And uh, as you know, affirmative action has just been a controversial policy in America for decades, right? Whether it's the workplace or it's academia, it's this belief that you need to have these lax rules and lax expectations so that minorities can get ahead. Now, in my view, that's racism. Uh, (laughs) uh, I can't really put it in any other way. And so what I really hope is that as the Supreme Court takes this up, they should call a spade a spade uh, and make sure that they call affirmative action racism as it is so that they can help organizations turn away from this type of abusive policy and more towards, you know, actually improving the skills and abilities of underrepresented groups. I think it's interesting that you you say this is an abusive policy because one of the things that uh, is being argued is that, well, these policies and and, uh, access to a college education, and in this case, it's Harvard, which which used to be known as one of the most premier universities. I don't think the reputation is what it used to be or their quality is what it used to be. But they're saying, but this is designed to help some people who have been, you know, through racism, through economic disadvantage, through whatever, uh, they wouldn't otherwise have the same opportunities, so we need to carve out some, I guess, um, additional opportunities for those who otherwise wouldn't need it. What's the response to that particular argument saying, no, these are justified because in this case, it's uh, it's, uh, being challenged on the basis of uh, Asian students uh, who are earning their way, according to the rules, not getting into some uh, spots and then those uh, in favor, I guess, of people of other demographics. Mike, I think it's really straightforward. Uh, my response to that is that is called the racism or the bigotry of low expectations. You know, it's not a coincidence that a core tenant of affirmative action is also a core tenant of this critical race theory that we hear is happening in our schools. It's an unrealistic progressive narrative that different outcomes between groups of people is because minorities are victims. And guess what? It is functionally the same as the 100-year-old, also progressive, rhetoric that different outcomes between people is because minorities are genetically less capable. It doesn't matter whether you're looking at 100 years ago at that racist argument or, you know, this affirmative action critical race theory argument of today. Both of them speak to the bigotry of low expectations. If you really want to improve people, help build skills. Don't lower the standards. And this particular case, I know, is over the general um, consideration of race when it comes to college admissions. Is there a better way then uh, if anybody were to say, well, yeah, I mean, uh, access to a college education can help someone, I guess, break an economic, uh, I guess, an economic disadvantage cycle. Is there a better way to do that other than race then? Um, Oh, yeah, there are many different ways. I mean, what what you ultimately have to understand is the world is full of examples of why there are just different outcomes among people. And it's not caused by discrimination or victimization. Um, I think uh, famed economist Thomas Sowell, he once said that differences in work and outcome the results from people having, quote, particular skills, particular experiences, particular locations, particular orientations. In other words, you know, like weather patterns across land masses, 
human skills and experiences are not smooth and identical. So if you really want to you know, help improve people, you don't need to focus on race. You don't need to focus on age or even gender. You just have to focus on the skills and abilities that people bring to the table. Oh, excuse me. And their experiences. You do that and you can work people up. And then, of course, you allow qualified individuals to apply and get the jobs and roles that they shoot for. Because when you don't, everybody loses. Yeah, so you're talking about meritocracy as opposed to filling, checking boxes. I mean, would there be an argument, for instance, I've heard it argued, Michael, that, uh, well, look at economic status, um, you know, or maybe, you know, wealth or, or that sort of thing in the household as a possible factor as well and take out race entirely. Is there an argument for that? Uh, based off of class or, you know, based off of uh, some other factor, I, uh, if, it's, if it has nothing to do with human capital, I say you're shooting yourself in the foot because, you know, uh, bad policies, you know, even if it has good intentions are still bad policies. You know, you don't get rid of racism. Um, you know, it doesn't disappear. It's not minimized. If you lower expectations based on the color of one's skin, it wouldn't, you know, sexism doesn't go away if you lower expectations based off of someone's gender. And the same thing wouldn't happen, you know, towards class. The actual, you know, disparity is simply that people choose different things in life. Uh, they have different value systems. They have different expectations. They have different experiences. And because of that, uh, there is, you know, it's a utopia to ever expect that, you know, equal opportunity means equal outcomes. And so, you know, once you understand that's how the world works, I think it's pretty straightforward. The only thing you can do is get people an opportunity uh, uh, and build their skills and abilities in order to get ahead. We are visiting with Michael Austin from our friends at uh, Project 21. Michael, is it really possible for us, at least from a governmental or higher education or other perspective, kind of an official perspective, to actually get to a point where we have that colorblind society and it's just all about your own merits? Well, that's a good question. You know, I, I think about it in terms of football. The reason, you know, the left keeps making this race baiting play is, to be honest, because it worked. And they're going to keep making this play until the other side, the other team, finds a way to stop it. Um, so with that being said, you know, the reason we're still here seeing this in, in our culture today and in uh, news and talk shows and things like that is because ultimately uh, it's been proven effective. And the only thing that we can do uh, uh, against it is, you know, to educate, uh, to inform, and of course, you know, uh, pull back the veil and show that these types of policies aren't really benefiting the people it's supposed to help. It's only benefiting either the politician or, you know, or the grifter who's making their remarks. What's interesting about this case with Harvard, Michael, is is not that it's just a matter of looking at some demographics. Uh, you know, in this case, there's there's a focus on uh, black applicants to Harvard, but it's that it's another uh, minority group that's uh, leading the challenge to it. In this case, uh, Asians. Now, we've seen an uptick in in violence against uh, Asians, random, senseless, reckless violence. Um, but there's also a trend in higher education and some business to say, okay, this minority group, Asian Americans or those of Asian descent otherwise, uh, they don't need any more minority protection. Uh, we need to focus on others. Uh, when you look at those kind of moving parts, what does that tell you about the direction that we're going when it comes to race and opportunity in America? Well, it tells you that the overall movement is just disingenuous, right? It's not even about minorities. It's about minorities that serve a particular interest, right? And whether that's uh, a voting block, whether that's just overall political clout, it's really not even about, you know, what they tell you. Um, and so I, I think that's very telling. 
going back to my point about just understanding how the world works, we're talking about racial disparities in academia, but are we, why aren't we, you know, having a conversation about the fact that most students in universities are under the years 50 years of age? Right. That's that's why isn't that, you know, considered a part of, uh, you know, this uh, disparity in an outcome conversation. And the reason why is because those who are making these remarks have a particular agenda that they're trying to achieve, a particular narrative, a particular rhetoric. And it has very little to do with actually improving, you know, the outcomes among everyday people. And it's all about funneling more power and money to themselves. Michael, pretty much every single college and university out there, I, I believe, has some kind of diversity statement and they work in diversity as part of their mission and their their values that they, they mark. And so if they say, but this is part of our values and mission is to have a diverse campus or a diverse faculty, how can they go uh, away from sort of an affirmative action approach if they say, no, we specifically want uh, this sort of racial diversity in, in our community. How can they do that and still be fair to everybody? They can. And that's why we really need SCOTUS to take a look at this. You know, um, for, for the longest time, the, the American judicial system, you know, kind of set a precedent that, you know, race and race and gender really should not be a factor in terms of admission process. And yet over time, you know, d- despite despite the good intentions, they're increasingly ignoring that fact. Um, and they're increasingly allowing more and more racial or gender discrimination in that application process, which is why I'm so excited that the SCOTUS is taking a look at it now, because I really want them to affirm, you know, Justice Thomas's uh, quote where he says the Constitution abhors classification based on race. I, I, I want that to be affirmed. I want uh, I want us to affirm that racism doesn't disappear just because you pick a different target. You've mentioned uh, the political aspect of this a couple of times, Michael. Let me let me kind of shift that direction. Uh, when it comes to the inclusion of race and accusations of racism, essentially what we're seeing right now, and this is going to be nothing new to uh, conservative talk radio, but essentially it's if you disagree with the left, uh, there you must have some sort of racist tendencies or motivations. Uh, and my just observation, Michael, and you're, you're going to have a better perspective on this, given what you do in public policy, is that argument finally wearing thin after a while. Are you seeing that by any chance? Yeah, it's almost like uh, the boy who cried wolf. Uh, you keep uh, calling everyone a racist or a sexist or, or a phobe in some, fo- in some way, shape or form. And, you know, people start to tune it out. And that's because, by and large, this argument is used as a way to silence debate. It has nothing to do about, you know, uh, personal feelings on the matter. It, it simply has to do with are you really, you know, getting the results that your intended policy is trying to achieve? And largely the answer is no. But instead of, you know, uh, society realizing that, you have one half of this debate completely shouting at the other side, calling them every slur and name in the book just so that they stay quiet. And now people don't care anymore because they realize that this type of policy is creating an ugly environment that they no longer want to be a part of. We're visiting with Michael uh, Austin. Now, Michael's background, for those of you who don't know, uh, is that of working, uh, you know, for instance, in the uh, the state of Kansas government under uh, Governor Brownback. And you're an economist. I mean, you've you've worked at the Show Me Institute. Uh, you've worked at, uh, you know, Kansas uh, uh, Policy Center. And, and uh, I think that's what they're called. Forgot to be real honest. But um, <laughs> right. you yeah, you've you've worked in these tactics. So let me ask you just one of the big uh, national questions. It just happened to your uh, econ background 
here. Uh, the Congress and President Biden are looking at trying to promote yet another massive spending plan after they couldn't get the Build Back Better plan through. If we're talking another hundreds of billions of dollars or trillions of dollars, what kind of economic uh, effect can we expect from that at this point? You can expect what we saw in the last six months. You can expect less uh, goods and food items on the shelves. You can expect uh, a much higher prices at the pump. We've spent so much of taxpayer dollars in the last you know year and a half. I I, I remember seeing a statistic somewhere that looking at the amount of COVID you know bills that have been passed out of Congress uh, has effectively added you know tens of thousands of debt for every man, woman, and child in America. So the fact that we're considering doing this again, despite you know all the clamor. Uh, the clamor and, and yelling about the effect that it's having on this economy is, is gosh, it's just mind-boggling. It's insane. Um, so I don't need to do much of a prediction because we just went through it. We're still going through it, uh, which means if this uh, type of bill happens again, uh, it's going to be harder and harder for more American families to make ends meet. Yeah, I like that answer, Michael. You, I think you would make a good state treasurer somewhere. Um, oh, really? I think so, too. <laughs> yeah, which is why I'm just putting it out there. Michael is running for state treasurer in the uh, state of uh, Kansas. And Michael, what's the website real quick uh, before I get to my kind of wrap up here? Austin4Kansas.com, uh, F-O-R-K-A-N-S-A-S. Find me on Facebook and Twitter by that handle. Okay, so Michael, I appreciate you being on the program today with this perspective. So the last question I've got regarding, you know, when it comes to the Supreme Court uh, looking at the race-based admissions policy outside of the politics, outside of the Supreme Court, how can we, in your view, uh, address the racial divides in the country or in any community on a more personal level? Because I'm tired of people looking at government or looking at courts to decide a winner and a loser and call that solving the issue well everybody in their own capacity you know knows somebody that needs help um, everybody in their own community and neighborhood knows someone who uh, needs help on that job application or needs to build a particular skill set or, um, you know, needs to learn a certain subject matter. And we can all, of course, take it upon ourselves to do what we can, right, to share that knowledge, to share our experiences, to share our abilities so that we can bring, bring up everybody else around us. Um, and I bet if we focused on that, it would have nothing to do with gender. It would have nothing to do with race. Um, and it would make, of course, society far better off. And then in our own personal conversations, when we're talking about affirmative action, effectively, we have to acknowledge that this is discrimination. And it's discrimination against individuals who are more qualified for a role. Uh, and it's, of course, in favor of those who are unqualified. And that doesn't make America the shining place on the, the shining city on the hill. All right, Michael uh, Austin, good to talk to you again, my friend. Uh, you can look at Project 21 uh, online, and we just gave you Michael's uh, campaign website as well. Let's, uh, let's do it again soon. Oh, I appreciate that, Mike. Thanks again.